0: because if people in ancient Rome were not concerned about the environment we wouldn't be here today or if they had the means to destroy the environment today we would be dying the time will come that people will feel the consequence of our actions now a barrel of petrol is equivalent to the work it does for us for my car or is equivalent to 11 people working for you for a whole year well Uh, that's a convenient thing for us. But who's going to scrub the atmosphere to remove the CO2 that's going to burn our descendants? Mm. Welcome to Care More, More, Be Better. A podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference. Vote with your dollars and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi.
1: Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, as we come back from our holiday break and enter what will be our fourth year of this podcasting journey, I'm thrilled to bring you on a deep conversation with an acclaimed neuroscientist about a beautiful story that he wrote. This is a work of fiction. Now, the one that explores perhaps some crazy ideas, that seek solutions, and that inspires us to work for more meaningful change together. Now, this isn't the first time that I've interviewed authors of fiction, the eco-fiction authors as it would be, about the power of their craft to push for real meaningful change. We have explored through a futurist's perspective on the topic of surrender, when I hosted a discussion with Lee Schneider. And then there was Juliet Rose, whose works of fiction have helped us to understand addiction and battling those addictions through sometimes other unhealthy habits, throwing ourselves into hard work and fighting fires in California, creating new traumas in their wake. And really the connection to our ecology and what we do as a people to surmount some of these challenging times the climate change crisis that we confront. This may not be the last time that you hear a story like this, in fact. Now, we also would remember a more recent episode in which I interviewed Isabel Reddy. And Isabel constructed an entire work of fiction around a coal mine disaster in Appalachia that occurred in the 1970s and that ended the life of so many people who worked hard To build that town, that holler. So today, as we get started with this new season, we are poised to ask perhaps different questions that connect to the ethics of scientific exploration and the incredible challenges that we face with this climate crisis. How might these two worlds intersect? That's exactly what we'll explore. Now, the questions that we pose, what if a modern-day geneticist were to discover what could be the bones of Christ and have the skill set, the resources, and the will to both extract that DNA and clone him, not just once, but twice. This story comes from someone that I would call an unlikely storyteller. He's an acclaimed scientist who studied at Berkeley, McGill, and Yale, and who was a visiting scientist at Cambridge, Oxford, Stanford, UCLA. He is Scientia Professor of Medical Sciences at Neuroscience Research Australia and the University of New South Wales in Australia. He's identified and named more brain areas than anyone in history and published 57 scientific books. His first, The Rat Brain and Stereotaxic Coordinates, is the most cited publication in neuroscience and for decades, the third most cited book in all science of all time. His name is George Paxinos, and he joins me today to talk about his first work of fiction, a page turning novel called A River Divided, which was published on October 31st, 2023, by Heads and Tails. I have so many questions for George Paxinos, and I'm sure you do too. I'll do my best to cover the bases. George Paxinos, welcome to the show.
0: Good day, Corina. It's a pleasure to be with you. I share some of your passion for uh, a better world for archaeology.
1: Yeah, that's something that we got to talk about before I brought you up, that I actually have a background in archaeology. So this main character that you explore, we're going to get into that quite a bit. But first, I would really love for you to tell us what moved you from your world of academic writing, 57 works, (laughs) and so much more, What compelled you to write this work of fiction, which I understand was decades in the making?
0: It was uh, decades in the making. Just before submitting it, a friend of mine found me working on it at a coffee shop in Bondi Junction, a suburb of Sydney. And she asked as usual, how is the book going? And I said, 21 years, and uh, I'm still not finished. She said, my cousin's novel was published posthumously. Uh, I said, you're giving me hope. (laughs) What moved me to uh, work on a novel, uh, it was failure leading to fiction, in my case. I tried uh, environmental activism, and things I tried failed. That is uh, protecting trees, forests, uh, protecting the tramway legacy of Sydney for the future advent of a light rail system. And I thought if only I could uh, write a novel and work not uh, on behavior, not try to stop someone who wants to cut a forest, but to make them want to preserve the forest. That is work at attitude, upstream of behavior. At the origin of behavior, then I could be more effective. But I didn't have the vehicle. I couldn't come with an idea. For a decade I was thinking of this until at one point, uh, one of the many pre-Christmas parties that we have in Australia, where summer coincides with Christmas. A friend uh, said, I notice you're going to Spain, and there you should go and see San Juan de Copostela, where the bones of St. James are buried. But I'll get some DNA and see what the guy looks like. And mm. then I thought, why not someone far greater? This is what the book is about. It asks the question, what would someone with the genetic endowment of Christ, uh, do if uh, he was born today? Would he join Wall Street or street protests? Uh-huh. It's a neuropsychological approach of Christ. I had trouble uh, finding a publisher. The first publisher approached, uh, asked me, what is this book about? And I said, well, it's a travel diary. It has to do with human cloning. It's about uh, resurrecting Jesus. It is uh, it deals with ethics. It is about the environment, principally about the environment, but it has philosophy as well. And he said, "And on what shelf would I place it?" And until that moment, I was convinced of Woody Allen's saying: "If you are a bisexual, you double your chances for a rendezvous on a Saturday night." <laughs> uh,
1: well, as it stands, I can understand part of what the publisher's dilemma is. It's who is the audience for this book? And frankly, I think it is a work of ecofiction, fiction but it is also, it really sits at that juxtaposition of the question of nature versus nurture and what really makes us individually who we are, which is, I think, one of the most compelling questions that we ever have the will to ask there've been so many twin studies. And so you're ultimately posing the question about that twin study. What if you were to make a clone? And that clone was someone who we had documented some of their life. They existed 2000 years ago and were known as the virgin birth or the son of Christ. I mean, the son of God rather, right? Now you made a couple of choices in this story too, that I think make it really interesting in another way. And that was that Evelyn, while she was a lover of Christ, wasn't exactly a devout Christian.
0: In fact, only because she was an atheist, she could, uh, or at least not a Christian, she could uh, contemplate the idea of finding the remains. All Christians believe that there are no mortal remains of Christ. So she Mm. had to be a non-Christian, in her case an atheist.
1: And I think too, there's also this question of, you know, the roots in Israel where she's finding the bones. Like this is very early in the story. So I don't feel like I'm giving too much of a page turner or too much of the story away yet, right? Because it's so early in the story. But finding them in a relatively open space and then worrying, going through that entire worry that they may be discovered and that her plans could be thwarted because she has this desire to do this thing of deeply questionable ethics, which is to bring Christ back into this world in what I really think would be the first true virgin birth in a way, because it's not like there's an insemination by another sperm. It's a creation from something of the past. Was that intentional? Was that part of your weaving of this story? Why did you make that choice in creating this work?
0: Right. That this Well, I wanted to have uh, someone, genetically, and as you pointed out, the influence of the environment, to use the psychology I knew, the neuroscience I knew, of identical twins raised apart, uh, come into play. In that way, the book is fiction presenting facts, in that neuroscience was what I knew and I could write. The aim was to bring the environment into play and uh, choosing Christ was deliberate of all other philosophers because uh, the early Christians certainly produced a big change in civilization. Uh, and they took over the Roman Empire, there was a new ethic. And this and more is required before we uh, construct a sustainable society. Now as to what symmetry exists there with the birth of Christ, which, of course, uh, is not, yeah, according to the protagonist uh, who produced the cloning, is not a case of virgin birth. It's just a birth like any other, and though the person, the philosopher, was unusual, and she chose uh, Christ rather than any other one because the changed society, the total shift, that we will need to uh, have. But there is, of course, some symmetry in the sense by the time the reader uh, reaches the end, we realize that one of the twins will find himself in the same position his foster father was. He will be a foster father as well. There is um, a plot that comes in full circle. The issue of nature versus nature that you mentioned Psychologists, of course, now say it is nature via nurture, much like two artists would sculpt different statues from the same block of marble. Different environments will sculpt different characters, even with the same DNA, even with identical twins, as we have the case in the book.
1: In this case, you're exploring the story of an affluent couple in Sydney bearing the child, Evelyn, in fact, having this child, raising it in that space, and then another individual that they solicit to have the child on their behalf in another space in South America with no real financial security and seemingly on the run for fear of discovery, There's this layer of another added intensity to one individual's life, and then an exploration of what happens with their moral character as a result of that. Now, I was very curious as somebody who um, is an anthropologist myself and was trained in archeology, span explored these topics many times throughout about whether your perspective at all changed in the writing of this story as you continued to do your research. Did you think it was nature more or nurture more at the beginning, or did you truly understand it to be a combination of both nature via nurture, as you just said?
0: Yes, I used psychological evidence of identical winds raised apart where you can expect some common traits, but you could expect that the environment will uh, produce variations in them. Uh, Still, the evidence, for example, for schizophrenia and most identical twins, is that uh, 50% chance if the probant, if the first one that you meet is schizophrenic, you can predict that 50% chance the other twin, the identical twin, will be schizophrenic. Similarly, with uh, sex preference, that is, homosexuals, uh, if identical twins, if one is homosexual, the probability is 50%, the other one will be, it's not 100%, so the environment plays a significant role. I used the psychological evidence for that, so I had from the beginning the idea of what can be expected usually, of course you can have variability in anything, but the reason that I attempted this is because I had the psychological background for it, and of course, out of interest, I had the environmental science, the data for that.
1: Like any great novel, this story does have a big conflict. And I think the two conflicts in this story are this potential of these two Christ figures or possible Christ figures meeting one another, because that question's always there. Do we believe what Evelyn believes? Is this a recreation, a clone of Christ, or is it just some other random person from 1800 or more years ago? That question is left to our imagination, never a firm answer, because how could you firmly answer that anyways? But at the same time, we have that piece of conflict. But then the other big bad really has to do with our environmental collapse and things that we're doing in the name of green energy and the Amazon. You have this central conflict in the story. And this is where the meaning of the book title, I think, really comes in, this concept of a river divided. We have two individuals that could potentially be on opposite sides of a story. We also have the outcome that relates to the Amazon. Are we going to damn it and continue this deforestation? Or are we going to let the land stay its wild and beautiful self and preserve its future for the generations that follow and for the health of tomorrow? I wondered if you could, for a moment, talk to me about why you chose this conflict in particular over another conflict and what does it really mean to you
0: that's right well the amazon is an iconic asset of the earth uh, and uh, uh, i actually wanted both siblings identical twins to have a leg to stand on that is we don't have the saint and the devil for different reasons they were supporting opposing actions one of them wanted to construct green energy renewable resources from the river and the other one was opposed to it because it was going to make the river downstream poor in oxygen and a number of fish species would not be able to cope besides having a limited time span and afterwards leaving the river with siltation and a huge loan to brazil they both have some reasons to act the way they do it suited the story to have a divided river because you do have a division between the two brothers, and the embryo itself was accidentally divided in half when Evelyn, the protagonist, constructed uh, the clone, accidentally divided it in two, and both halves kept their cell division, so he had two she had two embryos giving birth to one and the other, one, she could not, and uh, she gave it to a surrogate in Argentina. So there is that division of the embryo. Uh, There is identical twins, two of them. The story, uh, the divided river suited, besides, of course, being uh, an iconic asset of the earth.
1: I have to say, I found it to be a truly picturesque story because those that decide to pick up a copy, and I, I think most should, frankly, this is basically offers you the opportunity to explore from a story perspective, a lot of the topics that we've covered on this show. When we had Steve Hawley on this podcast as a, for example, and we interviewed him about his work cracked, which is all about the crumbling infrastructure of dams and why dams are actually a bad thing for ecosystems. This story works to tell you more about the reasons behind that and an entertaining perspective. You're not just sitting there reading the scientific (laughs) journal, so to speak. And sometimes I think our brains need that kind of a break. I personally found that I really enjoyed that exploration. I also really liked this perspective that Jose, we can call him the Jesus of South America if we want to, right? For this case, he is actually speaking about the brain as his mentor happened to also be somebody in the neurosciences. And he uses this metaphor, essentially saying that our brains aren't actually the right size for the solutions that we would seek to create. Like basically, we don't have the capacity to understand the unintended consequences that our actions will have. And because we don't have that capacity, we need to stop. And I have often felt this in a very real, rudimentary way in my bones and my being and my gut and my soul when I hear about things like the government doing experiments on an island off the coast of Hawaii in the rain shadow of Hawaii and choosing to do something like introduce a rabbit because they want to get rid of some grass that is growing there. And then they figure the rabbits are just going to die off after they eat all that grass because there's no water source. Well, guess what the rabbits started doing? They started eating the eggs of the seabirds because the eggs had moisture to them. So they're getting their water by eating the eggs of the seabirds that are in danger. And then to get rid of the rabbits, they introduced dogs. <laughs> it just got worse and worse. It was like the story of the little old lady who swallowed the fly. And, and these are really smart people working on these problems. These are really smart people and scientists working on these problems. Yeah and yet we can't solve the most basic of
0: them. Well, and in the case of the environment, Corina, the producing a sustainable society, which I assume everyone would like to see, is going to be a far greater challenge than uh, it's thought so far. If I can bring my eight-year-old granddaughter to this, I asked her, tell me something that you will do today that does not pollute the planet, she said, I said, that's good, but if you run, you will wear out uh, more shoes than otherwise, than running barefoot. I said, that is good, but if you run, you build up your appetite, and they will have to slaughter more chickens to bring them to you to eat uh, in trucks. She said, sitting in a chair. I said, that's very good, but to make a chair, you have to cut a tree, then lying on the ground naked. It is hard to think of something that you do today that does not pollute the planet.
1: This is one of my friend's arguments against recycling. She said, I didn't have children.
0: Yeah, well, in fact, yeah.
1: And I'm like, well, you know, you got me there because I had two. And
0: That's right. People shouldn't have to go to that extent. I mean, we are entitled to to have (laughs) our children. But the problem is not assisting those who do not have additional children, not to have them. This is family planning, and this is really Mm -hmm. where we find the institutions, uh, such as the religions, are working against survival. The concept of it is that you do not follow dogma but science. It's exactly the opposite that is happening now with the number of of religions, and this is taken up by one of the protagonists in. the novel, uh, Jose de Olmos, who asks uh, the question firstly, on um, his question is about equality. And he said, Tell me the difference between these two sets of groups of people Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini. And on the other hand, Nightingale, Marie Curie, Mother Teresa. And the answer to which his brother gave was, ordination. The first three can apply to become priests in the Catholic Church. The other three need not apply. And the Church deals with the environment no better than it treats women. That is, if you look at it, they consider prophylactics, which could assist people to plan their family and not to have so much, uh, like 80 million people, addition, coming to the planet unwanted. Their fears with this. They consider prophylactics to be more evil than HIV, from which they can protect you, and of course assist you to have your family, to plan your family. Unless religions get out of the bedroom of people, we will continue to have a problem with population. Because whatever else you do, if you have twice as many people you'll have to ask the problem, other things being equal.
1: As we think about this story as a whole, I'd really love for you to share what you hope that people will take away from this story and carry with them as a resounding message to perhaps inspire them or or keep them thinking. What is it that you hope that they will leave this story thinking about?
0: Well, I'll just tell you what my aim was to have a reset of religion, science, and culture and of course my book will be ignored much as most books are ignored but my aim i hope they will understand uh, humility that is that we are not as clever as we think that is the brain is a limited organ that produces limitation cognitive emotional motivational limitations and it is not that far different from the brain of the chimpanzee, which I also studied. In fact, um, I wrote to the Toronka Park Zoo in 1980 and I requested the opportunity to be given a chimpanzee brain once a chimpanzee died. They responded they would be happy to oblige, but they had not had the death of a chimpanzee in the zoo for a decade. Two months after receiving my letter, three chimpanzees died. Luckily, they didn't suspect me.
1: (laughs) Well, see, you and I have something else in common here. I actually, in my undergrad, had the pleasure of helping to, well, I worked on one of the chimpanzees that had passed in nature that Jane Goodall had studied. You know, had been kept in cold storage for a couple decades, frankly, because, I mean, I, I went to college in the late 90s. Yeah. But she had a very close friendship with Adrian Zillman, who was my professor of primatology. And I was an assistant in the lab. And so I got to work on a desiccated formalin-soaked skeleton and, and worked to prepare it, which was a very tedious process. But now that skeleton is part of the learning of the students of primatology at UC Santa Cruz. And I believe it was Flint's skeleton, well, a famous chimpanzee for those who study Jane Goodall's work.
0: Yeah. And aren't they similar to us?
1: So similar. And it's, you know, the more that you study them in life, I think the more you start to understand how yeah. little difference there really is. Like we have the ability to think on a somewhat different level, but they would never think to damage their living environment in a way. They would never think to pollute their environment. Yeah. They don't think about modifying it in the way that we do. They see the pastoral beauty of their environment and they work to be a part of it as opposed to separate from it. And that's something that we've learned to do differently than they have. I mean, the question of what makes us uniquely human has been one that I continue to question.
0: (laughs) Well, that's right. This human exceptionalism is not justified by science. That is, if you look at Darwin, he placed us where we belong. As it concerns the brain, because I studied in parallel the human brain with that of the chimpanzee brain, in whatever else, Corina, you resemble the divine, as it concerns your brain, you're made in the image of the chimpanzee. If only we understood that, that structurally the brains have no difference, the human brain is larger. Probably that's the reason.
1: But also getting smaller, like it's actually getting smaller over the generations too now.
0: Let's come to this in a second. But firstly, the chimpanzee brain is 600 grams, ours is 1,300. As to whether the brain is getting smaller, that would be simply the outcome of who is procreating more. If the large brain people, well, of course, to start with the size of the brain in humans within us, that is, doesn't have big role on on intelligence, has some, but the correlation is very small understand what I mean? You don't predict variability, as they say in science, by just checking whether your potential partner has a large hat, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> I wear a large helmet. We joke about this in my household all the time. <laughs>
0: yeah, there is some correlation between our size, the people who have larger head and intelligent, but not a large correlation, all right? Mm-hmm. Significant, but not large. But amongst species that is 600 grams to 1,300 grams that our brain is, that is chimpanzee more than twice our brain, that seems to be what makes the difference and you're talking to a human and not to a chimpanzee. But it also gave rise to a hubris that we have never since Narcissus looked at the reflection of his face on a river and fell in love with it. (laughs) Has there been such an adoration of a bodily organ as there is now of the brain? And never with such little justification for it. The human brain is an exception compared to our size, unexpectedly large. But the giraffe neck is far larger than what our brain is large in relation to the chimpanzee brain. And you don't have the giraffes committing hubris that godlike creatures because of their big neck. We have a species specialization, but we have to understand it in the scheme of things. And that, you know, the issue that the the book examines as one of the heroes in the book, Jose de Olmos, examines is whether the brain is the right size for survival. If it were smaller, as you pointed out, the chimpanzee is not undermining its subsistence, it would not have split the atom, it would not have produced airplanes that pollute the skies extracted fossil fuels, overfished the the oceans. If it were larger, it might have understood the problem, even solved it. It, It's just not the right size. And you might say, well, what is the right size? Uh, What is the Goldilocks zone for the brain? The Earth is in the Goldilocks zone around the sun. Much closer, it would burn. Much further, it would freeze. It is in the Goldilocks zone. What is the Goldilocks zone of the brain? I would suggest that, in the book that this goes into this, that if it were a bit larger than the chimpanzee brain, so that it will give us some quality of life, we don't live like troglodytes, but not large enough to split the atom, get into difficulties. The book asks an examination of ourselves. There was an engraving in the Pronaos of the Temple of Apollo in Delphi that said, know thyself. Let's understand who we are, that we are not uh, intellectually, emotionally, motivationally as strong as we think we are. Of course, the evidence is all around us in wars, but also in the way we damage the earth. If we only understood that, we would stop constructing Mouse traps, we are mice constructing mouse traps, as it concerns the environment. That is the question. the brain we have to understand our power and refrain from things that construct conditions for the extinction of our own progeny. If there was anything. and again, one of the heroes in the book asks says, if there were any immoral thing, it must be that this generation, Constructs the condition for the extinctions, the extinction of its own progeny in a terrestrial inferno. Refrain, understand who we are, and refrain from constructing the mousetraps.
1: I think that you have become a
0: philosopher. They've called me worse, Corina.
1: This is something that I've seen in artists, and authors, and scientists all over the world, it seems. It's like once you get to a certain point in your learning, you see patterns beyond what you expected in the beginning. Like you may have initially been focused on the myopic and identifying each of these interesting parts of the brain. But then once you get to see the picture as a whole, then suddenly the meaning of everything you've learned to date starts to change. And I think that's what I'm seeing here in you.
0: I started with philosophy, actually, at Berkeley, and then I was attracted to experimentation, which I did for 50 years. But then, yeah, I've come in some circle again. And really, yeah, philosophy can reflect on things in a more holistic way, that science produces the pieces of the puzzle that you have to assemble. In my case, it was really working with the brain, holding it in my hands. (laughs) Understand that this... 1.3 kilos of meat, of neurons and other cells is actually all there is. It is the product of the environment, much as many evolutionary scientists uh, have said in such an elegant way, Dawkins and others.
1: I would love to have another conversation with you about your work, specifically around the brain. My work in the professional field is in the space of omega-3s and I've studied, for instance, how fats impact the brain and half of the fat in the brain being DHA specifically and omega-3, and then how some of these challenges that we face as we age may also be related to the nutrition that we're putting in and the things that we're not getting because we're eating artificial foods or highly processed foods that are not meant to really be in our diets in the first place, then. Also, the story of the gut brain access and kind of the brain that lives in the gut and how these things talk to each other. I'm so curious about your perspective on these things.
0: And that's right. Neuroscientists have not cured any disease, but they are not altogether useless. They have identified factors that predispose you to earlier onset dementia than otherwise, one of which is diet, actually, one of the three, the first one coming. In most studies, the most significant is exercise, physical exercise, that is walking, running, swimming, rowing, cycling. The other one being diet, as you mentioned, and of course, processed food has additional burdens on it.
1: Or if you have like myself, I have a representation of the APOE4 genome type, which is negatively associated with brain degradation at times, or positively associated with it. It's a negative, but it means that I'm more likely to develop dementia or Alzheimer's if I don't have my lifestyle right. And the lifestyle definitely plays a role too.
0: Absolutely. But the most depressing thing on this issue is that the most significant factor, that predictor, that is the greatest predictor of whether you will develop dementia early is uh, your birth status. If you are born poor, then uh, you are out there on your own, and that starts, of course, from the inter-uterine environment, that your mother would not have had the appropriate diet, might have been smoking, uh, and continues forever. Uh, how many knocks you will get on the head, how what medical care you will receive, those, all of them, are yeah. uh, impacting, and so, whether you will develop, uh, earlier or later, education. A number of yeah. years you study. Of course, in science, it's hard to distinguish what is uh, the cause, the consequence, or the coincidence. And you don't know whether you might, somebody might argue that, well, well, uh, you uh, were not smart enough to go to university. That's why you develop dementia. Uh, it's not that the university protected you. Uh, but uh, the correlation is strong that uh, it's probably That education, if you can afford it, if uh, you can be motivation itself, if you can have the motivation. And incidentally, motivation itself is environmentally caused, as the book describes. In other words, you can blame poor people. They don't want to help themselves. The issue is, (laughs) who I mean,
1: I laugh at that because it's just the more you learn about cultures around the world, it, it definitely isn't that you have access to food, you have access to resources, access to good education. I mean, we recently even had a wonderful individual on this podcast who has gone through the rigors of a higher education and getting her JD and everything else out of a northern Ghana, really, where they didn't have a lot of access to education. And Rosalinda through ChemFed got access to these Resources and was able to then go and get her higher education and is now going back to that community and helping other people to rise up too. It isn't that we don't have the innate ability, it's that we don't have often the opportunity. And it's so easy, I think, when you come from the West to take a lot of that for granted. I know. George I think you said your name is Yergos because you're Greek yes. right that's correct but I'm looking at the title of the book and yeah. it says George Paxinos and I know yeah, Paxinos right. is Greek but you come from a part of the world that has a deep long history of education and I mean from Socrates to present but there's opportunity in Australia that that doesn't exist in certain parts of Africa or in like the slums of even different spots in the United States where people just don't have the same upward mobility. You could say they should bootstrap themselves up all day long, but their moms working night shift in addition to taking a day job. There just isn't as much opportunity around them. They don't see examples of people in their community succeeding. And by not seeing examples, they're kept back too. I actually really liked how your book tackled that too, because in Jose's case, what he saw was activism. And something that inspired him to learn more and to keep reading, and the power of the written word to educate him, the many books that he had in his room and how some of those books were even the same that were on his twin brother's shelves in a community that was well-educated. Improved access is, I think, the message, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And if there's anything unfair, if we think we need to give, if we claim that we want to give equal opportunity, all people are created equal, Well. From the moment even of conception, you have a discrimination. If you are poor, a poor people contract dementia earlier. That is, if you look at uh, the Aboriginal population of Australia, who is disadvantaged uh, from historical reasons, initially they were really neglected or mistreated. Now you have the situation where they contract dementia eleven years earlier than the non-Aboriginal population. And they die about 11 years earlier. And when recently with COVID, all people above 70 were locked in in Australia. You cannot go out above 70, except Aborigines above 50. In other words, 20 years earlier, the government looked for the Aborigines. In other words, they are more vulnerable. This is an admission that uh, things are not working yet. Uh, the government tries now, but there's a long way to go to bridge that gap in uh, health, including mental health, including that is dementia. This The injustices that people suffer from the beginning, that is, it's not that they have equal opportunity, there's a huge gap in opportunity even in postponing your dementia. I do not know why the poor people do not stage a revolution. The discrepancy between rich and poor is large enough to justify it, I think.
1: It was enough in the past for us to initiate
0: revolution. Yeah, that's right. It definitely was enough
1: in the past. And I feel like coming too, but then you have a pandemic and suddenly people are under control again. Wonder that. (laughs) Fear does a pretty good job of controlling people. And I think we need to control our fear too. Yes. This is my last question for you before I offer you the floor to close. Do you think that you're ever going to write another work of fiction? And if so, what might it be about?
0: My next uh, book will be entitled, How to Write a Novel in Less Than 25 Years. <laughs> this is my, I have said what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. I have returned to science. I'm happy to give uh, lectures as my contribution to uh, disseminating things that mean uh, through my journey, found through my journey in science, but not don't have that time available.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you've already written now it's what fifty eight books in total fifty
0: nine should be sixty by the end of this of, come the coming year,
1: yeah, wow. Well, continue your great work. As we close the show, I like to ask my guests what I call my final question, and sometimes it leads to another one or two. but is there a question that I haven't asked that perhaps you wish I had? If there is, you could ask and answer it. Or if you have a closing thought that you'd like to leave our audience with, I'd love to offer you the floor.
0: Yes, that uh, uh, consider the hubris, the human hubris, that we consider ourselves made in the image of God. Just consider what happened to Sisyphus, the ancient gods, were not uh, kind to the mortals who compared themselves to the gods. I told my eight-year-old granddaughter again this story of the king of Corinth was condemned by the gods to push a rock, Sisyphus, to push a rock straight up the hill only for it to fall down again and have to do the same job the next day because he was narcissistic, egotistical, and insulting. (laughs) (laughs) My granddaughter said, like Trump. Or Elon Musk.
1: (laughs) Some of the richest people in the world can be like that. It doesn't mean they have to be, but it certainly sounds like it's descriptive.
0: To have humility, understand our place in evolution, see that if there's anything unethical is what that which we are doing now. That is that we are undermining the existence of future generations and construct a sustainable society which presumably will have to be a world government. I know some people are allergic to the concept of United Nations. How else are you going to prevent these conflicts and see some egalitarianism and steer the ship through those big problems. We haven't had a war between California and Nevada. And that's the way it should be if you have a world government, neither between Victoria and New South Wales. Australia, the states, do not fight with each other. And that's the way we'll have to consider a possible way out of this impasse of uh, having the tragedy of the commons, which again, you would have found it in the book, the tragedy of the commons that these things held in common tend to degrade. The atmosphere is for everyone, and therefore nobody looks after it. And the oceans uh, likewise, which only superordinate organism can do this state. And I like the experiment that they started in Europe where the borders fell. I could imagine other countries accruing to that unit and then having a, a, a world government like that. But then started dismantling it, what will happen not in the uh, until the end of the century, which is expected the temperature to rise between 2 to 5 degrees, uh, which is really likely to end civilization as we know it, mm. but to look even beyond what's going to happen. Because if people in ancient Rome were not concerned about the environment, we wouldn't be here today, or if they had the means to destroy the environment, today we would be dying. The time will come that people will feel the consequence of our actions now. Barrel of petrol is equivalent to the work it does for us, for my car, is equivalent to 11 people working for you for a whole year. Well, that's a convenient thing for us. But who's going to scrub the atmosphere to remove the CO2 that's going to burn our descendants unless we... Consider the real cost of things, then it cannot be thought that we are acting morally as it concerns our descendants. And finally, if I may wish your audience for their brain to shrink less than expected for their age.
1: Yes. Well, I have to invite you, your ghost, to listen to an episode I recorded with Paula DePerna. She wrote this book called Pricing the Priceless, which is all about pricing the cost of these common resources from the oceans to the atmosphere. She actually studied alongside Jean-Michel Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau. She actually worked for Jacques Cousteau. And then through this weird connection, I actually ended up spending some time with Jean-Michel Cousteau and inviting him on the podcast too. I'm an ocean health advocate, and that's part of that journey, but ultimately, I'm here to support our climate health and the longevity of all people and the preservation of our planet. And I think the only way forward for all of us is to do so in a way that respects the common man and that respects mindful use of resources without thinking that technology is simply going to save the day because I think we have too many examples where it's failed. Frankly, it's because our brains are probably not the right size. Right.
0: Know yeah. oh, thyself. Know thyself is not as silly as it might look, not a slogan as it might seem.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've truly enjoyed it. And I think our audience has likely come along for this journey, wanting to read your book, A River Divided. And I know that this is available by Yurgos, spelled George, George um, Paxinos wherever books are sold. I know you can find it on Amazon. Is there anywhere in particular you'd like them to go to find this book? Is there a preferred
0: no, place? Amazon is fine. And if uh, they want uh, the audiobook, they can write to me. They'll find my email. It's easy. And I'll send them a link to the audiobook.
1: Wow, audiobook. Well, I would have enjoyed that. So perhaps I'll hit you up for that too. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Karina, it has been a pleasure. I hope we speak again. Certainly will. I'll invite you on my other
1: podcast to talk about brain health. Thank you. What a pleasure to have the opportunity to meet with an acclaimed neuroscientist and one who has taken up the helm of philosophy and answering some big questions through the work of his fiction in the simple and beautiful book A River Divided, available now wherever books are sold. Now, to learn more about George Paxinos, Yergos rather and his important work, visit the link that you'll find in our show notes. And for my complete transcripts, along with our expanded blog with links to the episodes and books that we discussed during today's podcast episode, visit our website, caremorebebetter.com. That will be linked directly in show notes as well. And while you're there, I hope that you'll subscribe to our newsletter, which will gain you access to a free gift. It's a five-step guide to unleash your inner activist. That could be used for climate activism. It could be used for a project that you're working on. It really is a thinking resource with some helpful links to get you started. It was ultimately the culmination of some of my work and my graduate degree for my MBA. Now, while you're there, I hope that you will also give me the benefit of the doubt and subscribe for future episodes if you haven't already on whatever platform that you're listening on. You could give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or even write us a written review. Each of these actions helps the podcast to grow, reach more people, get more great guests, and ultimately continue on this journey. Now, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leaving a review there really helps us. Thank you so much in advance for doing that. I do read every single one. If you want to go ahead and recommend a future guest, you can even do that in the written review, or you can send me an email note from my website, or simply by sending a note to hello at caremorebebetter.com. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, and we can even dream up a better world for tomorrow so that we can live and thrive together for generations to come. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.